One of the reasons that I love Christmas is because in the celebration of Christmas, we, we unwrap God's gift to the world, which is Himself. Christmas is all about the coming of God in the flesh. Christmas, the coming of God in the flesh, reminds us that our God does not, uh, he does not deal with our problems like we often do. God does not put a band-aid on, on our problems. He does not paper over them or sweep them under the rug. Rather, He personally deals with our problems by entering our world and our experience. And this is what we have the privilege of thinking about this morning from God's Word. This morning we are continuing our study in the book of Isaiah by studying Isaiah chapters 49 through chapter 57. And scholars are quick to point out that in these chapters, in these nine chapters, God does not merely deal with the, the exile facing His people, but with the problem that sent His people into exile, sin. This morning, as we study God's Word, we'll be confronted with our own sin. And I hope that we'll be comforted by how God has dealt with our sin in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So if you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 49. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's on page 609. 609. Uh, there's an outline in your bulletin that I hope will help you follow along as well. But we're going to be working our way through these chapters, moving uh, back and forth. Um, let me just mention something about the context of our study uh, together this morning. Last week, we, we heard, uh, we, we started really the second half of Isaiah. We saw God speak a word of comfort to His people. A word of, of comfort was necessary because at the end of chapter 39, we learned that the people of Jerusalem and Judah were going to be carried off into exile by the Babylonians. That was promised to them. God promised them that that would happen. And God promised that He would send a servant to rescue and redeem them from the mournful exile that lay before them. Not only did this promise pertain to near future realities for the people of God, because this took place in 586-587 B.C., but these promises also pertain to distant future realities for the people of God. And from the, writers, uh, from the perspective of the writers of the New Testament, the physical exile in Babylon was but a type for the spiritual exile that had been underway since the time of Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve sinned against God in the Garden of Eden, all humanity had been exiled from God's presence due to their sin. The holy God, you see, He cannot allow sin to be in His presence. And as we saw last week, the New Testament authors help us to see that God's promises of sending a servant not only included the Persian king Cyrus to bring the people of Israel out of exile, but they looked beyond him. They looked beyond Cyrus to Jesus. Jesus would be the ultimate servant that God would send to save his people from their sins. He would be the one who would accomplish the redemption that we need. And it is in recognizing this about Isaiah's prophecy, we see actually how the whole Bible is tied together. And it is in recognizing this that we actually see what Christmas is all about, the coming of God's servant. Last week, we saw Isaiah speak to the people of Israel uh, in, in the terms, uh, a good bit in the terms of kind of captivity and freedom. Uh, redemption includes setting the captives free. But it includes more too. It actually includes principles of justice. The truth is, is that Israel went into captivity because of their sin against God. But because God is holy and just, He cannot let sin go unpunished. And this week as we study Isaiah chapters 49 through 57, part of what we need to think through is the question of how God can be just in redeeming and rescuing sinners... How is it that He can be just in setting them free and, and welcoming them into His presence when they are guilty of sin? And the surprising answer is this. Is God's servant, the one who He will send, will set them free. He will redeem them by bearing the punishment that's due to their sins. In other words, God's servant would be a substitute who will stand in their place and take the punishment against their sins. 
So God's justice can be satisfied. The message of Isaiah chapters 49 to 57 is clear. Only God's servant can save us from our sin and the exile that we have been plunged into because of our sin. And if you want a one-sentence summary of, I think, the message of these nine chapters, that's it. Only God's servant can save us from our sin and the exile that we've been plunged into because of our sin. Uh, You'll notice there in your handout, we're going to work through four questions, which I think summarize the heart of these, uh, these chapters. So let's begin with our first question. Who is this servant? And let's read Isaiah chapter 49. Let me begin by reading just verses 1 to 3. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named me. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Here, in, in this uh, chapter in Isaiah 49, we are introduced to what is sometimes called one of the um, servant songs. Uh, the book of Isaiah has a number of them, particularly in the second half. And, and the focus of these songs, as you may have guessed, is on a, a servant of the Lord. Uh, By the way, the song opened, you might be able to tell that it's actually the servant who is singing. Uh, He is singing about the work that that the Lord has called him to do. So who is this servant? Well, from the text we see he is one who is called from the womb and named by God according to verse 1. He is one whose mouth has been fashioned to speak truth. He is one whom the Lord has purposed to glorify himself. He's even called Israel, you'll see there in verse 3. And it's at this point... Uh, we kind of start to wonder, uh, how is it that this individual servant can be said to be the the nation of Israel as a whole? It it seems clear that this servant must be one who could stand as a a representative of the people of God. And and the people of Israel had this concept really built into their DNA. Uh, They had it in Adam, who was a representative head for all of humanity. All of humanity sinned and fell in him. Uh, They had it in the sense that Moses was a representative on behalf of the people before God. He was a mediator between God and man. They had it in the idea of their priests who would offer sacrifices on their behalf. They had it in their idea of their king who would lead God's people before them. So the, the people of Israel had in their consciousness a concept of one who could represent them as one who could stand for the whole before God. But God's servant couldn't just be anyone. Uh, as we know from the whole sweep of the Old Testament, in God's great promises and plan, He ordained that a servant would be one who would come from His people. The Lord promised Abraham in Genesis 12 that through him and his offspring, the nations of the earth would be blessed. And if you take a look at verse 6 here in chapter 49, I think that we can hear an echo of God's promises to Abraham that through Abraham's offspring, the nations of the earth would be blessed and be blessed in a saving way. As we learned from Genesis 3 and as we read from Romans 5 earlier in the service, we know that the Lord had planned to raise up one man, Jesus, to represent his people, to rescue and redeem them where Adam had failed them. So who is this servant? Well, this servant is the one who will be from the people of God, from Israel, and he will rescue the people of God by representing them before God. This servant is Jesus. Uh, Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. As sinners place their faith in Jesus... They become those who through union with Jesus glorify God. They become those who are represented by Jesus. This servant is is different from God's people, right? So you're not Jesus. I'm not Jesus. And at the same time, he cannot be separated from God's people. For God's people cannot be separated from his love. And that's how and why this servant can be called Israel. And be called to save Israel. And if you were to read the the Gospels with the history of the people of Israel kind of in the back of your mind, 
you would see that Jesus undertakes the role of Israel and lives faithfully where Israel failed. So like Israel, Jesus goes through an exodus in Matthew chapter 2. Like Israel, Jesus is called God's son in Matthew chapter 3. Like Israel, Jesus faces temptation in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. And, and we could keep going all the way to the cross where Jesus dies and is exiled from the land of the living. The point is that the servant is a single individual who represents the people of God. And that is how he will redeem the people of God. But having said that, we've now kind of ventured into his work. We've turned, we've ventured into what he will do. So having considered that the Lord's servant is the one who will come from God's people to rescue God's people, we now turn to think more about what it means that he came to rescue God's people by representing God's people. We turn to think through the question, what does he do? And as we consider this, let's read Isaiah chapter 50, uh, verses 5 through 7. That's on page 611, I think, of the Bibles provided. And as we hear these verses, what we need to keep in mind is that here, once again, we are hearing the servant speak, and he's speaking about himself. And here's what the servant says about what he came to do. Chapter 50, verses 5, 5 through 7. The Lord has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. I wonder, can you hear the voice of Jesus in these verses? The servant confesses that he's not been rebellious to the Lord God. Who in the whole history of humanity could say that other than Jesus? Think about what Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 38. Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And, and the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, that Jesus took the form of servant, that he was obedient even to the point of death. Jesus was disgraced. He was beaten and struck and spit upon, and he gave his back to the lashes. Though outwardly the servant, Jesus, was disgraced by men, he was honored by God in heaven. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 to 23, this is what the apostle Peter said about Jesus when he was facing all of this. He said, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I think that it's fair to say that in Isaiah chapter 50, verses 5 through 7, we have a picture, a window into what theologians call the active obedience of Jesus Christ. The active obedience of Jesus Christ refers to the fact that he did everything that God required of man. He faithfully and fully kept God's law. Or in the words of verse 5, he never turned his back on God's commands. Without his righteous obedience, sinners cannot be accounted righteous. It is not enough for sinners to be forgiven. They also need to be given a righteousness that they do not possess. They need a perfect record of God's law keeping, of, of keeping God's law. And if we know our own hearts, we know that we have not done that. Only the servant can deliver that. And that's what he did for his people. Here again, we're seeing that God is concerned not merely with the fact that his people are in exile, but that he wishes to deal once and for all with the problem that sent them into exile, with sin. Therefore, there is another aspect to the work of the servant that is required for the salvation of his people, and that is undergoing the, that just penalty that's due to sin. This is what we read about in Isaiah chapter 52, beginning in verse 13 and stretching through the end of chapter 53. Let me encourage you to turn to Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. That's found on page 613 of the Bibles provided. And let me just say, as we begin to kind of read this, if you're trying to think through, if you're trying to explain what Jesus has done for sinners, this is a great passage in the Bible to go to. And I'd like for us to kind of read through this passage somewhat meditatively, uh, which means that I'll start reading, uh, and then every once in a while I'm going to stop and call us to reflect on the work and the sufferings of Jesus Christ on our behalf. 
Uh, let's begin reading there in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what they have heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, I think could be read as something of a, a summary statement of Jesus' life and work. He did act wisely. He obeyed his Father in heaven to the point of death. And because of that, he was given the name that is above every name. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. The focus of this song, though, is mainly on his humiliation, not his exaltation. We're told that he would be marred and maimed. He would be so disfigured that no one would really wish to look upon him. And yet, it is through his horrific humiliation that he would sprinkle and so save many nations. Particularly in his youth, Jesus seemed to live an unassuming life. We have so little information concerning his childhood. And what we do have, nothing is said about his outward form. There was nothing in his physical appearance that would draw so many to him. Far from being desired, he was despised. Perhaps some of us here this morning used to despise him. Perhaps some of us here this morning despise him still. Friend, can I invite you to consider what he has done for repentant sinners? His whole life, Jesus' whole life was lived for the sake of others. Let me encourage you to keep this in mind as we keep reading. Let's pick up reading there in verse 4 of chapter 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He took our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, and our iniquities. You see, he was a substitute in our place. When the eternal Son of God came into the world and took on our flesh, he did it so that he could take the punishment for our sins upon himself. And as verse 5 says, he was crushed for our iniquities. And do not miss the activity of God in all of this. He was smitten by God. In other words, on the cross, Jesus self-consciously endured the punishment of God the Father. And what was his reaction to all of this? Did he rage at heaven and shake his fist because of this? Did he indignantly lash the earth with his tongue? Read verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. 
You know, the gospel accounts of Jesus' trials and his death faithfully record Jesus carefully using his lips. Though he was perfectly innocent, he endured unjust trials in silence. The few words that he did speak were nothing but the truth. When he died, he was, as verse 8 says, cut off from the land of the living. He was crucified on the cross with wicked men on his right and on his left. A rich man named Joseph of Arimathea provided him with a grave. You could read about that in Matthew 27, 57. He went through all of this for the transgressions of his people. Verse 8. But he also went through all of this for another reason. Take a look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Jesus had to die upon the cross because it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was God's purpose to save sinners. Jesus had to die because God had purposed to make many to be accounted righteous. Verse 11. The holiness, the righteousness, and the justice of God require that not only should his servant be sinless, verse 9, but that his servant should receive the punishment for the sins of his people. Jesus didn't die because he had sinned. No. He died because his people had sinned. Because God is just, he cannot allow sin to go unpunished. And so the transgressions of God's people receive a righteous and just punishment in the servant who represents them. For the sins of his people, the servant was rewarded with God's just punishment. But he was also rewarded with something else too. He was rewarded with an offspring whom he would see. Verse 10. In other words, he would live again. And he would be given the spoils of his victory. A people from the nations. A people who do not trust in their righteousness, but who trust in this servant. Which leads us to our next question. Who are these people? Who are those for whom this servant died? Who did he serve? And as we think through this question, let me encourage you to ask yourself this question. Did Jesus serve me? Am I one of his people? Uh, To think through this question, let's turn back to Isaiah 49, verses 5 and 6 again. That's on on 609, the Bible's provided. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 49. Let's read verses 5 and 6. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord. And my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Here we have the servant recounting the Lord's words to him. These verses teach us that the servant is called to serve the people of Israel. He said to, to gather sinners from Israel to God. But that's not all. And it's not enough. It is too light a thing. It's too, it's too small of a thing for the servant to only save sinners from Israel, or Jacob as they're here called. No, the light of the servant's work needs to extend to the nations. He needs to be not only the rescuer and redeemer of Israel, but he also needs to be the rescuer and redeemer of people from every tongue and tribe and nation. 
You don't have to be Jewish to be saved by this servant. You can be a Gentile. You can be a non-Jew too. This is what happened after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension into heaven. The good news of His salvation started in Jerusalem, where so many Jews first believed. It then spread to Judea and then on to the ends of the earth. This truth that the salvation of the servant was to extend to the ends of the earth is also pictured in chapter 54. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 54. And let's take a look at verses 1 to 3. That's page 614 of the Bibles provided. Isaiah 54, verses 1 to 3. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and stretch your stakes for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. The married woman here with children is none other than Israel previous to her exile. Israel was married to the Lord at Sinai through that covenant produced children throughout the course of her history, but was disgraced and made desolate by the Lord's judgment of her sin in the exile. This is the advance that I think we see taking place in verses 4 to 10, where we see that reconciliation between the Lord and His estranged bride Israel is achieved. Much the same could be said about the city imagery at the end of the chapter, verses 11 to 17. Israel was a, a beloved but a broken city who be made beautiful again. And what we cannot forget is that all of this stems from the work of the servant mentioned in chapter 53. With this in view, with the work of the servant in chapter 53 in view, what Isaiah seems to be communicating as a whole is that Israel's former glory and her fertility is about to be eclipsed. And all of this is coming out of the devastating exile, no less. This is why she is to sing for joy and to enlarge her tents. Her offspring will possess not some small slice of land in the Middle East, but the nations. She will people the desolate cities of the earth. And this should remind us of God's promises to Abraham to bless the peoples of the earth. This should also remind us of the fact that the Apostle Paul, he quotes this passage in his letter to the Galatians, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 27, he quotes this passage to bolster his argument that the Gentiles are now included in the people of God. There Paul argues that Jesus is the one who has begun the process of possessing the nations by bringing them into the family tent. The family tent whose extension should have no end. This servant came to serve the people of Israel, and the peoples of the ends of the earth. In short, He came to serve those who trust in Him. This is what we see in Isaiah chapter 51. So flip back to Isaiah chapter 51. Let's take a look at verses 11 to 13. Here we see that the servant came to serve those who trust in Him. Isaiah 51, verse 11. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of a man who dies? Of the son of man who is made like grass and have forgotten the Lord your maker. Who stretched out the heavens that are laid at the foundations of the earth. And you who fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor. Who, who, when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? So you see what, what's happening here. The consciousness, the Lord speaking to his people. You're, you're beyond the exile now. I've brought you back. Where's your oppressor? I'm the one who's comforted you. I'm the one who's rescued you. You can trust in me. That's what the Lord is calling for from his people. We have the privilege of listening to the Lord comfort his people. He, he comforts them by promising the work of the servant will accomplish their release from exile. It will bring them everlasting joy. And it should also bring them great confidence. God's people should not fear the maker of heaven and earth. He watches over you people. He cares for you. God says, do not fear you 
You will come out of Babylon. You will come out of exile. So trust me through this trial. Last week we thought about what the people, uh, what the Apostle Peter said uh, to believers in Jesus Christ. We, we, we live in a kind of exile today. As New Testament Christians, we live in a kind of exile. Peter told us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 and 19, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. As citizens of heaven, believers live in a kind of exile here on earth. During our time on earth, we are not to conduct ourselves in the fear of man, but in the fear of God. That's what Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10, 28. The servant came to serve those who would trust in him. And trust in him means abandoning any trust in yourself. Trust in God and in his servant means abandoning any trust in yourself. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 57, verse 12. In this chapter, we are greeted with the Lord addressing his people. And frankly, the, the Lord delivers quite a startling message to them. He tells his people that he can see their hearts. He says that he can see whether or not they really trust in him and in his salvation. Throughout the chapter, he tells his people, I can see that you're actually really idolaters. I can see that you don't really trust in me. He says, I can see that you're actually clinging to your own self-righteousness. You're clinging to your own good works instead of the work of my servant. Take a look at verse 12. I will declare your righteousness... And your deeds, but they will not profit you. Friends, we, we need to hear this word. If you are here today and you think that you are safe from the wrath of God against your sin because you are a good person who does good things, then you need to know that this verse is for you. Your good works, and the Lord doesn't deny that they're good. Your good works will not save you. You may provide coats and shoes for the homeless in the winter. You may provide a pound of sugar for your neighbor. You may do these good things, and I would encourage you to do them. But friend, your good works and your goodness will not save you. The servant did not come. Jesus did not come to save those who rely on their good works for entry into God's heavenly presence. Jesus did not come to save the self-righteous. He came to save sinners and people who know themselves to be sinners. He came for people who confess with their mouths and believe, as Horatius Bonar once said, not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Your voice alone, O Lord, can speak to me of grace. Your power alone, O Son of God, can all my sin erase. No other work but yours. No other blood will do. No strength but that which is divine can bear me safely through. We must believe and trust that Jesus and Jesus alone has brought us peace with God. We must believe and trust that Isaiah chapter 53 verse 5 is true. We must believe that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Now, friends, as we began this section, I urged you to enter into this question in the back of your minds. Did Jesus serve me? Am I one of his people? Did his chastisement bring me peace? There are eternal consequences to how you answer that question. Take a look at the end of our passage. Isaiah chapter 57 verse 20 and 21. Isaiah 57 verse 20. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quieted, and its waters toss up 
mire, and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then please take this warning from Scripture as a kindness of God to you. Here, the one who made you is telling you that there is no peace for the wicked. That he continues to see the dirt and the mire of your life thrown up before his face. Like the waves of the sea crash and bring up dirt. But he has also told us that all who trust that the chastisement of his son and servant on the cross brought us peace. So friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then friend, I pray that you would hear this word from God and be comforted by it. He made you in his image. You and I and everyone else on this earth have sinned against him. And in love, God sent his one and only, his most beloved son to live the life that we have not lived. To die the death that our sins deserved as our substitute, bearing the penalty and punishment for them. And he came to be raised from the grave so that we might be accepted as righteous in God's sight. Only for the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is given to us. And we receive that by faith alone. So friend, turn from your sins and believe in God's son and servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. And receive peace and reconciliation and salvation from God. And if you want to know more about what it means to have peace with God, then please do find me at the door after the service. Uh, speak with a family member or friend that you came here with this morning. Love to talk to you about this good news. Now, one of the criticisms that Christians often face is that since they believe they've been redeemed, they are free to live however they want. Real believers know that that is the farthest thing from the truth and is the farthest thing from what the Scriptures teach. Having been forgiven of our sins and freed from its bondage, it becomes our heart's desire to live for the glory of God. And these chapters outline how the people of God are called to live in light of the work of the servant. Let's turn now and consider our final question. How do his people live? How do servants of the servant live? Turn back with me to Isaiah 51. Isaiah chapter 51, let's begin there in verse 1. And, and as we begin to work through a few of these passages, let me just say this. We have to be relentless in keeping the redemption and the work of the servant in our field of view. We live in response to God's redemption. The commands and instructions that we're reading about are given to a people who have been assured that their redemption from exile is coming. So how much more ought we to hear and heed these passages as a people who live on this side of the history of redemption, who've already been accomplished, the redemption's already been accomplished in Jesus Christ. Read Isaiah chapter 51, verses uh, 1 through 8. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord, Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all of her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden. Her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people. Give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light for the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know my righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all 
generations. Notice the call to look to Abraham and Sarah there in verse 2. That's a call to learn from their faith. Remember when I called Abraham, he was but one to make a nation of many. Call to trust the Lord. Faith for us does not end. Faith does not end when we first come to faith in Jesus. No, we keep trusting in Jesus Christ all throughout our lives. We're called to believe that God will restore the created order to its former glory. The wilderness is turned into Eden, to the garden of the Lord. We're called to believe that God will restore it to its former glory and beyond. That's what verses 3 to 6 make clear. We're called to live in hope, awaiting the full restoration of the creation. And it's because of Jesus' resurrection of the dead. It's a sign of the new creation. This is coming. Then notice in verse 7 that God's law is written on the hearts of His people. Christian, think about that for a minute. Think about your heart for a moment. Do you love God's commands? Do you love God's commands? Do you view them as holy, as just, and as good? Do you keep the commands of the Lord Jesus Christ? In John chapter 14, verse 5, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you not grateful for all that He has done for you? If you do love Him, if you are grateful for all that He has done for you, then it will be your heart's desire to keep His commands. And let me say this too. If you, if you find obedience to the commands of Jesus hard, go back to Isaiah 53 and remember the hard work of the cross. Take a look at the end of verse 7 again. Two more phrases I want us to think about there. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. Brothers and sisters, are you afraid of what others will think of you when you, I don't know, when you pray in public? Maybe you are afraid of reproach. Maybe you're afraid of the revilings that you might face when you share the good news of Jesus. Maybe you're afraid of being called a, a bigot. Let us give thanks to God that Jesus bore our reproach. Let us give thanks to God that Jesus was reviled for our sake. And let's pray for the boldness to pray and share the good news of Christ. I'm, I'm so grateful uh, that the women of our congregation spent the last several weeks risking being reviled and bearing reproach for the sake of Jesus' glory by inviting friends and family who do not know the Lord to an evangelistic event we had here. Brothers, uh, let's learn from our sisters in Christ. And children, let me invite you to join in the work of inviting other people to come and hear about Jesus. Invite your friends to come to church or to Sunday school or to the Christmas Eve service. Be bold for the sake of Jesus Christ. This time of year, many are wondering what Christmas is all about. So let's share the good news of Jesus Christ and invite them to the place where we talk about what Christmas is about every Sunday that the Lord gives us. God's people love to trust Him. That's what we've seen. God's people keep His commands. They love to bear reproach for the sake of His glory. They love to pursue holiness. This is what we see in Isaiah 52, verses 11 and 12. Isaiah chapter 52, verses 11 and 12. Depart. Depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall go out, not go out in haste, and you shall not go out in flight. For the Lord God will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Here, you can see that Isaiah is, is addressing the coming freedom from Babylon that the exiles are, are facing. And as they go, the Lord instructs them to purify themselves. Notice in verse 12 that we're told that the Lord goes with them. That's why they seek to purify themselves. Because the Lord's with them. That's why they shed their former life of slavery to sin. And pursue holiness unto the Lord. This comes up again in Isaiah chapter 55. Now turn to Isaiah chapter 55. Let's look at verses 6 through 11. Let me read Isaiah chapter 55 verses 6 through 11. 
Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from the earth and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be out that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. I wonder if in this, these, these verses, like the last section we just read, if you see the close connection between seeking the Lord and forsaking wickedness. That was the same connection we saw in the last section. Pursue purity because the Lord is present with you. When you are struggling with sin... And you cannot seem to stop? Can I ask you a question? Are you seeking the Lord? Um, maybe instead of focusing in on our sin, we focus in on the Savior. You see, we, we don't pursue purity for the sake of purity. Pursuing purity for the sake of purity leads us to lose sight of the one who makes us pure before the throne of God. Our goal is not finally purity, but conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. And we have to see Him and seek Him to know what He is like. So, brothers and sisters, in view of God's compassion, forgiveness, and abundant pardon through the work of Jesus Christ, let me ask you, are you seeking after the Lord are you pursuing Him through His Word and through faithfully gathering with His people? Are you calling upon Him in prayer? Are you forsaking wickedness in your life? Are you turning away from sin? Are you abandoning unrighteous thoughts like verse 7 encourages us to do? We cannot afford to entertain unrighteous thoughts even for a moment. They lead to so much destruction and devastation in our lives. And maybe when sinful pleasures creep into our minds, we ought to pray and remember Philippians 4.8. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence or if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Seek the Savior. Verses 8 to 11, you'll notice there of chapter 55, the Lord is telling His people that His promised word of redemption will come to pass and accomplish its purposes. This is what gives His people the encouragement to forsake their wickedness. Isaiah's original audience was called to live in light of this promise. Redemption from exile is coming, so forsake your wickedness. Brothers and sisters, God's word has come to pass. God's word in Jesus Christ has come to pass. Where Isaiah's audience was called to live in light of a promise, we are called to live in light of the fulfillment of that promise. How much more ought we to forsake our sin? We know that we have the assurance of pardon because Jesus has died and been raised from the grave. But like these first saints who heard this message from Isaiah... We also live in light of a promise. We live in light of the fulfillment of redemption in Jesus Christ. But we're also living in light of the promise of His return. So let's allow the promise of Christ's second advent to shape our lives too. Let's be prepared for Christ's return by living godly, righteous, and sober lives. Not only do God's people love to trust Him to keep His commands, to bear reproach for Him, to pursue holiness, to forsake their sin, to call out to Him in prayer and seek Him. But God's people also love to rejoice in their redemption. Turn to Isaiah chapter 55, verse 12. 55 verses 12 and 13. And this is where I'd like us to conclude. Uh, I'd like us to conclude by considering the fact that the people of the servant live in joy. Isaiah 55 verse 12. For you shall go out in joy 
and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and instead of it, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. These verses obviously continue to have the hope of rescue from exile in view, but as we've seen from God's word, the servant has done the work to free us. He has dealt with our sin before the throne of God. And he has given us the hope of the final restoration here of all of the created order. Here we're told that the creation will rejoice when the ultimate fulfillment of God's redemption is complete. Right now, you and I both know in our lives that the creation groans under the heavy weight of the curse. Violent, natural disasters rip through the creation. Thorns and weeds invade gardens. Death and disease interrupts life. But one day, the weight of the curse will be finally lifted. The weight of the curse will be fully and finally lifted because Jesus has met our greatest need. We have been assured of this. The reversal of the curse has begun. When Adam and Eve sinned, God promised them that death would reign over them and over their offspring. But because of the work of God's servant, Jesus Christ, a new humanity has begun to be formed in His resurrection from the dead. He has defeated the world's worst enemy. He took our deepest problem down into the grave and He buried it there. And he came back up. Death has lost its sting. And that is why God's people should sing with joy. This time of year and all throughout the year, the people of God should rejoice for the servant, our Savior, has come. And he is coming again. Praise God. Let's pray together.